0: Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is born. Him. Like others before me, I'd like to offer my apologies for focusing more on the screen here for the benefit of those who are live streaming the service with us this morning. To be honest, I found it hard to know where to go in today's sermon. The Sunday after the Nativity is one where we remember Joseph, the betrothed, David the king, and James the brother of the Lord. And it's like in the credits to a movie, the main actors' names come first, and then the supporting actors. At the nativity, we celebrate Christ. The following day, we honor his mother. And from there, in the days that follow, we remember others who played a role, including this interesting trifecta of people. And these all add to the joy and reveal how God was working in the lives of people across many centuries to bring his plan to pass. But today also, and this was the source of my difficulty, we have as our reading some terrible events. We have the stoning of the Archdeacon Stephen by the hard-hearted religious leaders, and the slaughter of 14,000 children by King Herod. These holy innocents, as we call them, are commemorated more fully on Tuesday, nevertheless, the reading is there for us today as well. So I'll seek to answer the question, how do we make sense of such extremes? How can we celebrate the joy of Christmas when, like then, there is still so much anguish and suffering in our world today? First, some background to those commemorated. David the king lived a thousand years before Christ. He was Israel's second and greatest king. He was a son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah, and it is said that he was a man after God's own heart. He was a warrior, a poet, a skilled musician, and he was the single biggest contributor to the book of Psalms. He became a model of repentance for us after his great sins of adultery and murder as well. We also commemorate Joseph the betrothed, who was a descendant of David and a humble carpenter. He had several children in a previous marriage, including the Apostle Jude, Salome the Myrrh Bearer, and James, the brother of the Lord, who we also commemorate today. When the time came for the Virgin Mary to leave the temple, she couldn't go home because by that point, her parents had already passed away. So eligible widowers were gathered at the temple, uh, Joseph among them, and each were given a staff. These staffs were placed in the Holy of Holies, and Joseph's staff began to bud, much like the staff of Aaron did in ancient times, and this uh, indicated that he was the selected one. So he took care of the Virgin Mary, and tradition tells us that he was an old man when Jesus was a child, and that he passed away before Jesus grew into adulthood. James, the brother of the Lord, as mentioned, was a son of Joseph. He's not to be confused with James, the son of Alphaeus, or James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, both of whom are part of the Twelve. But this James accompanied the Holy Family on the flight to Egypt, and he presided over the council of Jerusalem, recorded in Acts 15 as the first bishop of Jerusalem. St. Paul tells us that after Christ's resurrection, uh, Christ appeared to him in a special visit, and he was eventually martyred for Christ. So together, these saints add to the joy of the feast. Though, like the Theotokos, there is a notable absence of detail in the scriptures of the lives of James and Joseph, what we find is that there are important links with David, that where David provides a type or a foreshadowing, which was then fulfilled in the lives and the lifetimes of Joseph and James. David received the promise that the coming Messiah would be of his bloodline. And a thousand years later, Joseph and James see the Messiah himself in the flesh. David guarded the Ark of the Covenant and wanted to build a home for it. And a thousand years later, his descendant Joseph guarded the new Ark, the Virgin Mary. David made Jerusalem the capital of Israel And James, his descendant, becomes the first bishop there, shepherding the flock, just like David, the shepherd. David himself prophesied the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God in various Psalms, joining other Old Testament prophets in doing so. And in the council of Jerusalem, it was James presiding as bishop who declared that Gentiles were to be included in the people of God and not just Jews. And this is what James says from Acts fifteen thirteen, Brethren, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, uh, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up that the rest of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who has made these things known from of old. And he quotes there from the book of Amos. So we experience joy upon joy at the fulfillment of what was partial and incomplete at the time of David, being made final and complete in the lifetime of David's descendants, Joseph and James, through the work of Christ. And we honor these men for the part that they played. Now, this is contrasted with the 14,000 children slain by King Herod in his endeavor to kill Christ. This is shown in an icon that commemorates this sad event. It's often known as the lament of Rachel. And she represents Jewish women in mourning. And on this icon, you have uh, a woman uh, with dead children in swaddling clothes all around her. And she has her arms raised in agony. This is a very unusual pose in iconography. You, you hardly ever see it. One of the times we do see it is when Jesus' body is being prepared for burial. One of the myrrh bearing women is in this exact pose, and it's a pose of complete desolation. This sadness, this sad theme is continued in the stoning of Stephen, one of the first deacons selected by the church, a man full of the Holy Spirit, and good deeds, who uh, undergoes a hideous and an unjust death. And these events remind us that even as we celebrate the joy of Christmas, we are in a very uncertain world, devastated by the pandemic, by wars and armed conflict, by natural disasters, by political instability, economic uncertainty. And the church continues to be persecuted in various ways in different countries. This year, moreover, has taken a toll on all of us in one way or another, either in very open and obvious ways or in inner and hidden ways. So how do we reconcile then the joy and the peace with the sorrow and the trouble? We do this by acknowledging that the joy and the peace that we receive are not of this world. They transcend it. Speaking about peace... Christ, in his discourse to his disciples prior to his crucifixion, says in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And a couple of chapters later, he says in chapter 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So Christ promises us that we will have trouble and that he does not give peace as the world gives. His peace is something other. I think the peace that the world gives can be summed up in one of the lines of a Christmas song that I actually like, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And I think that this line shows the secret hope that many people harbor, especially approaching 2021. And the line goes, next year, all our troubles will be miles away. And I'm worried that people have unrealistic expectations for 2021. People just want this year to be over, right? We've had enough. Forgotten, behind us. We're desperate for a sense of normality, for some kind of peace. And I think people somehow expect that next year has to be fabulous. It has to be wonderful, as if we are somehow owed a better year than the year that we have had. The peace that the world gives really is just predictability. No disruption to a mediocre existence, maintaining the status quo, smooth sailing all the time. I think this is summed up uh, well by Radiohead when they sing satirically, no alarms and no surprises, please. Of course, this kind of peace is just an illusion that those in wealthy countries can keep up. Those in poorer, less stable countries with a lower standard of living cannot afford such fantasies. And there is nothing of Christ in this kind of peace that is just a treading water, a holding pattern, or a high-functioning sleepwalking, as Emily St. John Mandel describes it. Going through the motions of life without any threat to a life of ease, day after day, until death finally comes. Let's not forget that though Christ is the Prince of Peace, he also once said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What he means by this is he has not come to give the world's type of peace, of maintaining people's comfortable lives with nothing to challenge them, nothing to challenge them to a higher call. He was happy to shake things up for people, to disturb their fallen and flawed peace for that which lasts. The disciples come to him saying, the people are hungry, send them away so that they can buy something to eat. He says, you buy them something. He falls asleep intentionally on on the boat, knowing that his disciples were going to be afraid. The rich young man comes to him asking what he may do, and Jesus tells him the one thing he didn't want to hear. And Jesus made very uh, powerful people uncomfortable with how he lived and what he said. He was not interested in merely keeping the peace. He came to give a peace that is deeper, a peace which lasts, a peace that is dependent on the things of this fallen world is absurd when there is calamity upon calamity and nothing to quell the inner turmoil and the lack of inner peace that people sense without Christ. Joy, as the world gives, is no less tenuous. Joy is often sought in the satisfaction of sensory pleasure, in shopping, eating and drinking, in entertainment, in going out, going on holidays. Or it's found in aimless pursuits, money, status. Or it's found in self-help delusions that sugarcoat the real problems of the world. And these materialistic surrogates for joy, though some of them are good in and of themselves, are dangerous because they force us away from the the essential question. What will bring me joy when this is taken away? In speaking to the woman at the well, Christ says in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst The water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. Our peace and joy are not of this world because they are founded on the eternal. St. Paul himself had this true joy and this true peace. He writes in two classic verses from Scripture. Firstly, from Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And a similar thing in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So unlike what the world gives, which is dependent on things going well for us, the joy and the peace of Christ comes in the middle of trouble and can not only coexist with pain and suffering, but can even thrive under difficult situations. We see this reality in dramatic fashion in the martyrdom of Stephen where he has a glimpse of heaven and Jesus himself in glory, even as the stones come raining down. His joy and his peace are secured, even as he is being killed. And this is characteristic of many, if not all, of the martyr saints. Some of them hasten to their martyrdom in their joyful willingness to suffer for the beloved. Others kiss the instruments of torture St. Lawrence, when he was being tortured on a burning gridiron, even cracks a joke saying, I'm done on this side, you can turn me over now to do the other. We see that the joy and the peace of the presence of God, it passes all understanding, as St. Paul tells us, and it can overwhelm all sorrow. Again, as Christ says, a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. The point is this. That if Stephen and the other saints, even as their bodies are being tortured and killed, can experience the peace and the joy that are not of this world, how much more can we, in our lesser problems, even have just a little taste of what God has to offer to us? The reality is that our troubles will always be very near. Yes, even in 2021, but God will be nearer. The counterbalance to the icon of the lament of Rachel is the icon of the holy innocence. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's where all the children are in heaven with Christ, the children killed by King Herod. And it's very cute seeing all these little halos kind of crowded around Jesus huddling around him. And this is the full picture. God has had the last say. We don't ignore pain and suffering. In fact, we have what some people call a joyful sorrow. And the oxymoron here is intentional. Our joy never forgets the fallenness of the world and it laments the tragedy of the human condition because blessed are those who mourn. But our sorrow is tempered by our hope in Christ and the peace and the joy that his presence gives. We see that even the most horrible atrocity fades into insignificance in the hands of he, who will wipe away every tear from every eye. If there's anything that this world needs right now, my brothers and my sisters, to conclude, it's a witness of this transcendent joy and this transcendent peace. A joy that is not the evanescent thrill of the Boxing Day sale or the eating of special foods and a peace that is not the mindless cycle of daily routine that demands no faith and no turning of the heart to God, but something totally other. And just like at that first Christmas, we celebrate even in the midst of evil, pain, and a fallen world because Christ has overcome the world. Let us then all the more place our trust in Christ, turning to him for our joy and for our peace with whatever next year holds. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Of the true faith, door to paradise, confirmation of the faithful ramparts set above the church. Through thee the curse is utterly destroyed, the power of death is swallowed up, and we are raised from the.